Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On July 6, 1977, Airman Jeffrey Michaels failed to report for duty at Minot or Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. He simply disappeared and could not be found. That is, until 40 years later. He was discovered by Air Force officials living a double life in Sanford, Florida, under a different name. Michaels reportedly used a fake name to obtain a Florida business license in 1998 and posed as a general contractor for a construction company. Because of there is no statute of limitations on deserting a military post, he ended up standing trial in a military court and going to prison. If our armed forces considered desertion a serious offense, can you imagine how the Lord feels about those who fail to live out their commitment to Him. The dictionary defines desertion, excuse me, defines a double life as leading two separate lives in order to gain the benefit of both worlds. I'd like to introduce you to a man today who never considered living a double life an option. If you would, open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue our series in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews chapter 11 called Unlikely Heroes. also want to encourage you to pull out the sermon note handout that's in your worship folder. And men, I want to encourage you to be the spiritual leaders that God's called you to be, your families, by taking your Bible and your pen out and following along. The theme verse for this series has been Hebrews 11.6. Let's read it out loud together. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 was written to a uh, group of new Christ followers that had been saved out of Judaism. They were experiencing intense persecution for following Christ. Their friends were deserting the faith and they were considering doing the same. In order to encourage them to keep their commitment to the Lord, the author recounts the lives of a few Old Testament heroes who trusted the Lord against all odds without deserting. One of the most difficult times to live by faith is when living like an unbeliever would be easier. Thus, our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence, is this. Living faith chooses holiness even when worldliness would be easier. Living faith chooses holiness even when choosing worldliness would be easier. More than 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon diagnosed a major problem in the church today when he prophetically proclaimed, quote, I believe 
One reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence in the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Unfortunately, things have not gotten better since the mid-19th century when he preached that in London, England. Research in the last couple of decades shows that professing evangelicals in our country are losing more and more of their distinctiveness. For example, polls show that Christians and non-Christians consume the same media content. There's virtually no difference in the choices that Christians make as far as what they watch, what they read, what they listen to, compared to non-Christians. Both non-Christians and Christians purchase lottery tickets, which reveals they think the same about finances. And both divorce at about the same rate, according to statistics. I think the author of Hebrews mentions Moses, who we're going to be looking at today, because when pressure mounts on Christians to conform to the world... Believers will be tempted to live a double life in hopes that they can be accepted by the world and the Lord. However, the scriptures teach this is not possible. You might remember me mentioning earlier in this series that reading through Hebrews chapter 11 uh, sort of feels like watching the popular game show Jeopardy. On Jeopardy, the host gives an answer to which contestants are asked to provide the question that goes with the answer in order to win prize money. Well, in chapter 11 here, the author of Hebrews seems to be giving the answer, you can be holy and persevere by faith because the hall of faith did. And the question that was probably posed by the audience that he's writing to seems to be, can we compromise on holiness in order to make following Christ easier but still please the Lord? And as you will soon see, the apostles' answer, the short answer to that question is, no, you cannot. And so as we continue our guided tour through the Hall of Faith with its vaulted ceilings and marble pillars, our next stop is in front of a statue of Moses. Abraham and Moses are two of the most talked about heroes in the Hall of Faith, making them what sports media today would call first ballot Hall of Famers. Abraham is mentioned three times across eight verses, in chapter 11. And Moses, on the other hand, he's mentioned just once. However, his one reference gets seven verses that we're going to look at today. So, in total, Abraham gets eight verses, Moses gets seven, and then the rest of the Hall of Faith gets eh, one or two verses each. If you would look at the text with me, we're going to be working our way through verses 23 to 29 in Hebrews 11. Verse 23, I'll start reading. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful 
And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here's the first point on your outline, the first blank I want to encourage you to fill in. Uh, This is the first truth that I think Moses teaches us about living faith. And that is this. Moses recalled the expression of living faith in his parents. He recalled the expression of living faith in his parents. Now, uh, we're going to do something a little different today than what we've done in previous messages in this series. Uh, in the past what I've, few weeks, what I've been doing is read a couple verses in Hebrews 11, and then we would jump back to the Old Testament, and, uh, and I would show you the rest of the backstory of what the author in Hebrews is talking about. But today we're going to just stay in Hebrews 11, and for the sake of time, because these seven verses on Moses actually cover several chapters in Exodus. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to summarize what the chapters in Exodus uh, tell us about Moses, so then you'll know what the author of Hebrews is referring to. And so uh, for verse 23, the backstory comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8, on up to chapter 2, verse 10. Back then, after Joseph was carried off to Egypt in the book of Genesis, his people multiplied from being a large family to a tribe. There was a change in pharaohs in Exodus chapter 1, and the pharaoh, the new pharaoh that came to power, was concerned that the people, the Hebrews, might outnumber the Egyptians and overthrow the government because they were multiplying and growing so rapidly. So, the Pharaoh attempted to control the Hebrew population in his country by making an edict requiring midwives to kill any sons born to Hebrew women. However, the Hebrew midwives feared God and secretly let the newborn sons live. One particular couple bore a son, nursed him for three months in hiding, and then placed him in a floating basket in the Nile River when they could no longer keep him hidden. Through a sheer act of God's providence, this baby was found by Pharaoh's daughter, adopted by her, and named Moses. Notice in verse 23 it says, Moses' parents saw that the child was beautiful. I'm using the ESV translation Uh, This is a tricky verse in the scriptures, or in this particular chapter, excuse me. Uh, The word beautiful used in the Greek text literally means of the city, polished manners, or having an eloquent eloquent body. (laughs) It sort of means cosmopolitan. But is the author saying that Moses was a cute baby? No, not exactly. He was actually saying a lot more than that. Some other translations, and I know some of you have different translations than I do, some other translations render this Greek word as he was no ordinary child, or he was divinely favored, or God had given them an unusual child. Maybe you feel that way about your kids, but uh, in order to understand the author's intent here, we need to look at the context, and then something else that we can do that's a good Bible study method is to look at how the word is used elsewhere in the Bible. Well, interestingly, this Greek word that's used for beautiful in the ESV, it's only used one other place, and that's in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, where Stephen is preaching 
and he references Moses and basically says Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think what the authors of Scripture are trying to say is simply that Moses, excuse me, Moses' parents realized that he was special, and they sensed in their spirits that God had special plans for him. And that's why they put him in the basket in the Nile. That's why they defied the Pharaoh's edict to kill sons. The point is this. Moses had parents with a living faith in the Lord. Now, obviously, when he was a three-month-old baby, he couldn't discern that. But he learned about it later as he grew up in Pharaoh's household. And we'll see in the coming verses that this greatly influenced Moses' decision as an adult, his decisions as an adult. Now, in verse 23, it's a strong reminder, I think, that if Christian parents have an authentic living faith, and they fear the Lord, they can have a tremendous impact on the spiritual life of their children. In fact, some of you are here today because the Lord blessed you with godly parents and used them to teach you the truths of the gospel. Uh, interestingly, I, I found this uh, Interesting article uh, this week as I was uh, preparing this message and doing research uh, in a Huffington Post article titled, The Number One Reason Teens Keep the Faith as Young Adults. In that article, author David Briggs cites extensive research that had been done on the influence parents have on the faith of their children. And the study found this, 82% of children raised by spiritually active parents were also spiritually active as young adults. Researchers discovered that parents who talked about their faith at home demonstrated the importance of their beliefs and were active in their congregations frequently had children who did the same after leaving home. And you've heard me say before in messages on parenting, it's not a guarantee if you live for Christ as a parent that your child is going to pick up the gospel and, and live for Jesus when they become an adult. However, you greatly in, in, improve the odds that they will. This study is probably why author and professor Dr. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary challenged parents with this memorable truth. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You cannot impart what you do not possess. And so I think verse 23 reminds us of the importance of Christian parenting, and it shows us the influence that his parent, Moses' parents had on him before he was even old enough to realize it. What he picked up on growing up in a pagan household is that my parents feared God so much they would defy the Pharaoh's edict. And God loved me so much that he providentially chose me to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. That's what Moses was able to discern. 
Now, if you would look at verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's number two on your outline. The next thing we can learn about living faith from Moses is that he rejected the pleasures of the world. He rejected the pleasures of the world. The backstory on this comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Moses spends the first 40 years of his life growing up in Pharaoh's household, living in the palace of the most powerful man in the world at that time. As a member of the royal family overseeing the Egyptian empire, he had access to the best education, housing, food, clothing, and every sinful pleasure known to man. One day he realizes how difficult slavery has been for his own people. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. Infuriated by this poor treatment of his own people, Moses kills the Egyptian and buries the body in the sand. When he hears that the murder he committed had been uncovered, Moses flees into the desert in Midian, eventually finds a wife, and spends the next 40 years of his life working as a shepherd in the desert, in obscurity, as a nobody. Notice in verse 24 it says, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It means he could have been, he could have stayed in Pharaoh's household, living in the palace, living this luxurious life. He could have done that, but the author of Hebrews wants to make it clear to us and to his audience that no, he forsaked that life and left. The author, I think, is describing that critical moment when Moses decided to walk away from the only culture, the only family, and the only standard of living he had ever known. And he did it to follow the Lord and to identify with his own people. It's literally a riches to rags story. Notice also in verse 24 that in doing so, he chose to be mistreated rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Had Moses stayed with the royal family, he would have retained things that unbelievers spend their entire lives trying to obtain. Power, pleasure, protection, popularity, and privilege. But Moses realized that such things are temporal and they have no eternal value. Well, not only is Moses' story true, it's also a parable illustrating how the Lord calls new Christ followers to put to death their old life so they can come out of the world and wholeheartedly follow Christ. Moses models the willingness every believer should have to walk away from anything that hinders their relationship with the Lord. But sadly, some believers get stuck with one foot in the world and one foot trying to walk with Christ. 
That is what the Bible calls worldliness. Worldliness is thinking the way unbelievers do about the purpose of life, relationships, retirement, money, physical appearance, work, entertainment, politics, etc. Worldliness is talking and walking like the world so much that there is no visible difference between the person who claims to know Christ and accepted him and the person who has rejected Christ. That's, in essence, what worldliness is. Or, as author and pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote in his book, The Whole and Our Holiness, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Thus, one way to know whether you are struggling with worldliness is a desensitization towards sin. It's where sin just doesn't bother you anymore. You, you, you can see things on TV or in a movie or listen to a song with sinful lyrics or celebrating sin. It just doesn't bug you because you're desensitized to it. This is because worldliness is a byproduct of a false gospel that says this. You can have the forgiveness Jesus offers without repentance in order to hang on to the sin that Jesus died to set you free from. And I hope you just picked up on the illogicalness of that. Is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. I might have just made up a word there. It is illogical. <laughs> this false gospel is rarely made explicit in our culture, because the adversary knows better. That would be too easy. Instead, it's usually implicit, subtle, making it harder to detect. Regardless, such thinking is absolutely unbiblical. And what's even sadder is that millions of people that have heard this false gospel and swallowed it whole are going to be in for a rude awakening when they stand before the Lord someday. Now, just to be clear, the Lord does not call every believer to become a monk and to move into a monastery. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying here, and it's certainly not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures do talk about good things that the Lord has given us to enjoy, such as his creation, family, fellowship, food, sex, etc., etc., such things are not sinful so long as we don't make idols out of them. So living faith chooses holiness even when choosing worldliness would be easier. So what would cause a man to walk away from all that Moses had? Well, the answer is in verses 26 and 27. Look at the text with me. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
Here's number three in your outline. The third thing that Moses teaches us about living faith is that there's a cost to it. Moses accepted the cost of living faith. Please notice in verse 26 the financial terms that are there. There's three in the ESV translation, wealth, treasures, and rewards. It says in verse 26 that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater. Reproach means to be disapproved of or disappointed in. That's what the world, how the world sees Jesus. They disapproved of him. They were disappointed in him. They rejected him. Moses saw this as a good thing. It was greater than what he had experienced for 40 years growing up in a wealthy household. So it not only gives us additional insight into Moses' thinking, but it's also astounding by how contrary to human nature this is. He was able to walk away from worldly wealth because he didn't see wealth the way the world did. In other words, when Moses weighed in his mind the earthly treasures of Egypt against the eternal rewards that come from obeying Jesus... He chose Jesus. Because he knew eternal rewards are so much better. Not only does the Lord reward better than anybody else can in the universe, the Lord's rewards also last longer. They don't perish, they don't burn, they don't disappear, they can't be stolen. They don't deteriorate or erode over time. So Moses thought to himself, I may suffer here on earth, but I'll be pain-free forever. I may be lonely in this lifetime, but I'll never be lonely again in the next life. The cost of living faith was temporary for him, but the benefits were eternal. Moses had an eternal perspective. He saw his life here on earth as short, and he saw his life with the Lord in eternity as forever. So living faith chooses holiness even when choosing worldliness would be easier. Look at verses 28 and 29. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer or the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they were attempted to do the same, they were drowned. So here's the fourth truth, the fourth thing that Moses teaches us about living faith, and that is that Moses experienced the usefulness of living faith. He experienced the usefulness of living faith. The backstory on this is these two verses is actually Exodus chapter 3 through chapter, I'm sorry, it's chapter 3 through chapter 12. In Exodus 3, you probably remember the story, the Lord calls out to Moses from a burning bush after spending 40 years shepherding sheep in the desert. So he's now 80 years old. And the Lord recruits him to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. The Lord says, I want you to go back now and get your people and bring them out, and I'll help you. 
And by doing so, Moses got to witness one of the greatest displays of God's power in world history. He got to be a part of it. And then, of course, Exodus chapter 4 through 12 details the series of events that led to the Exodus. Now, a point of clarification here, these last two verses in Hebrews 11, verses 28 and 29 that we just read, they're not saying that living faith is useful to keep on hand like a pocket knife, so you can just pull it out whenever you need it. That's not, that's not the point here. Instead, living faith made Moses useful to God. Because of his living faith, he got to be used to save a tribe that would become a nation. He got to see the biggest superpower in the world at the time, humbled and lose a sizable portion of their army in the Red Sea. Moses would have missed out on these opportunities without living faith. So, he experienced the usefulness of living faith. He became eligible for God to use him to do great things. And so can you. Now, how do we apply what we've learned here in these seven verses on Moses about living faith? Uh, We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Here's two applications that come to mind. First of all, number one, decide who you want to please. Decide who you want to please. In 2 Corinthians 5, and by the way, I want to encourage you to write down the scripture verses that you see on the screen and maybe look them up later in your Bible, maybe memorize them or stick them up around the house because uh, these verses that I'm listing here next to the applications go with them. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time. This is where Paul says the genuine Christ follower should make it their aim to please him in everything that they do. I'm listing this application because I believe that when you strip away all the layers on this particular issue of worldliness versus holiness, when we strip it all down and we get down to the root cause, I think worldliness is fueled by a desire to please people who have rejected the Savior, while holiness is fueled by the desire to please the Savior who accepts guilty sinners. When an individual repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, he or she will face several forks in the road throughout the rest of their life in which they have to answer the question, who are you going to please? Are you going to please the world, or are you going to please the Lord? I know I've faced it many times before I was in full-time ministry, and I certainly have after going into full-time ministry, where I came upon crossroads, and I had to make the difficult decision Am I going to please the world and people, or am I going to please the Lord? Oh, man, but pleasing the world and people would be so much easier. 
I feel peace about that. I'm actually anxious about trying to please the Lord. <laughs> and as you heard me say in an earlier message, saying you have peace about it is not a good diagnostic for God's will. I honestly have to tell you, I've never felt peace about doing anything God called me to do. Carrie, <laughs> I want you to plant a church. Oh, man, I feel absolutely calm about that. Don't know how my family's going to get paid. Don't know where we're going to start the church. Don't know, you know, what I'm going to do about retirement benefits. Perfect peace about it, though. <laughs> Don't know if anybody's going to show up. Galatians 1.10 is the other verse that I have mentioned there uh, uh, on, the, on the application. That's a key verse because it's where Paul says, we cannot please both men and God. And if we try to please man, we are not pleasing the Lord. The second application that comes to mind that I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider, number two, pursue personal holiness. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you should be pursuing personal holiness. Every day, every hour of the day, and every minute of the hour. The call to follow Christ is also a call to personal holiness. Anybody who tries to tell you holiness is optional for the born-again believer is lying to you and spreading a false gospel. That's because Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross for our sins so we can keep on sinning. He also died to set us free from the bondage of sin because sin's not good for us. Sin separates us from the Lord. Sin is offensive to the Lord. Sin makes our lives messier. Ruins our relationships. It's bad for our health, physically and spiritually. The New Testament is filled with calls to personal holiness. Just two in particular I have listed there for you, two references in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Paul says it's God's will that you be sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart or to be purified for special use. In 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, Just as he who called you is holy, you should be holy in all your conduct. Not just on Sunday, but all your conduct, he says. In his classic work called Holiness, its nature, hindrances, difficulties, and roots, Bishop J.C. Ryle defines holiness in this way. And by the way, this book on holiness is, it's like at the top of the list, one of the best books of all time ever written on holiness. Um, along with uh, Jerry Bridges, he wrote one in this century on holiness. But uh, Ryle says this, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with the God of the scriptures. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment hating what he hates, loving what he loves, 
and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He or she who most entirely agrees with God is the most holy man or woman. A holy man or woman will endeavor to shun every known sin and keep every known commandment. They will have a hearty desire to do his will and a greater fear of displeasing him than displeasing the world. For Christ followers, this means our decisions, our relationships, our time, our finances, our social media posts, what we watch, what we read, what we listen to, how we talk, how we dress, should all be shaped by our personal pursuit of holiness. I've been doing this since I came to Christ in college back in 1991. I remember, I remember when I first got saved, the Spirit convicted me about albums and cassette tapes and CDs that I had that I listened to when I was a pagan that I slowly, over the next couple of years, started to purge because as I listened to what the songs were saying, I felt conviction and went, whoa, wait a minute, that's, that's encouraging or celebrating sin or adultery. I, I don't need to be singing that melodic hook throughout the day as I go to classes on campus. That's not going to help me maintain a pure relationship with my girlfriend, Maya Lundgren. So I started purging things like that. I remember watching a movie with a brother in Christ who was more mature than I was. He'd been saved longer. And I was watching a movie with him um, because we were a couple of Christian dudes that had nothing to do on a Friday night. And uh, we watched this movie, and a sex scene comes on. And I was a new believer, and um, he says to me, uh, dude, like, can we fast forward through this? And I went, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody had ever taught me to do that before. And so uh, ever since then, whenever that comes on, I fast forward through uh, movies that have uh, sex scenes in them. And then what I started to do was to preempt that and get ahead of it by reading the reviews and going to websites like Common Sense Media or Folks on the Family has a good, helpful website where it'll tell me what's in the movie. And if there is sex in the movie, I, I don't need to see that. I don't care how popular the movie is. It's not going to help my thought life. It's not going to help me remain pure with the Lord. Uh, I've continued, actually, to, to change what I watch and what I listen to. Uh, uh, I, I was just reflecting on this last night. There are things that I watched on TV and listened to five, six years ago that I look back now and I go, what was I doing? I don't watch them anymore. I don't listen to those things anymore. Because the Lord's still convicting me. I'm still growing. I'm still developing my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit uh, to this day. And so uh, I, I share that with you personally to say it's a lifelong journey. It's not instantaneous. But if you walk with the Lord, you study his word, you maintain a close relationship with him, he'll show you the things that you need to stop spending money on. He'll show you the things you need to stop listening to, stop watching, stop reading, or replace it with this instead because it's better for your heart. 
and your walk with him. Now, a word of caution. We cannot do this in our own strength. Many Christians have tried and failed and thrown in the towel, exhausted, trying to be holy in their own strength. However, when we put forth the effort to become more like Jesus, he promises to give us the power of his grace and his spirit to help us. And that comes by just simply being plugged in and abiding in Christ daily. And as you walk with him and you practice the spiritual disciplines, you'll be able to look back over time and see that he's changing you, just like I shared with you. I can look back five years ago and go, man, like I... On Netflix, sometimes on Netflix it comes up like, because you watched XYZ movie, we're recommending this to you. And I'll sometimes go, I watched that? Oh my gosh. Go to my history, delete that. I can't, what was I thinking when I watched that? Because I'm in a different place spiritually now than I was five, ten years ago. I'm still growing in my walk with the Lord. Well, in the spring of 2006, a horrific crash took place in Ohio when a semi in a van full of Taylor University students and staff collided on Interstate 69. Uh, Taylor University, for those of you who don't know, is a small Christian school located in Indiana. It's, when, I, when I was living back in the Midwest for the first 40 years of my life, it just regionally was well known as a reputable Christian school and many churches sent their students there. The accident killed three students and one staff member, and it put freshman Whitney Serak in a coma. She was unable to speak to family and friends who surrounded her hospital bed, and she laid in that hospital bed for five agonizing weeks. After she awoke from her coma, Whitney was confused as to why the family and friends surrounding her bed weren't her family and friends. When the hospital staff had her write her name on a clipboard, it was discovered that another tragedy took place on the day of the accident. For five weeks, law enforcement officials Doctors, family, and friends thought the girl in the coma was Whitney's classmate, Laura Van Ryn. In the chaos that followed the accident on the day of the crash, the identities of Whitney and Laura were mistaken because both were blonde and shared similar physical features. That's correct. Whitney's family believed their daughter was dead for five weeks, only to find out she was still alive. And Laura's family believed their daughter was alive for five weeks, only to find out she was dead. Ten years later, while speaking at her alma mater on the anniversary of the crash, Whitney said this, quote, My family had a funeral for me. A lot of people wonder what they'll say about you at your funeral. Well, now I know. 
and it wasn't all good. Whitney grew up in a Christian home. She went to a Christian university, and she realized, after hearing what was said at her funeral, that she was not walking with the Lord like she should have been. Now that awful feeling that you have in your gut right now, like I do, after hearing this story of mistaken identity, well, that awful feeling is how the Lord feels when we look like we belong to the world when we actually belong in his family. Living faith chooses holiness, even when choosing worldliness would be easier. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know that holiness is not popular. The adversary has worked long and hard for centuries to... Um, cause all sorts of misconceptions about it, to make it the most unattractive thing imaginable. The world mocks holiness. The adversary says it, it means having no fun, losing all your friends, living like a monk. But Lord, we know from your word these things are not true. The holiness is good. It's something you love. In fact, it's something, it's a part of your character. So Father, please, would you, would you change our thinking about holiness? Would you detox the lies that we've been told by the world out of our heads and replace them with the truth about holiness? that it leads to a closer relationship with you. It leads to a better life and more blessings and fewer regrets and no shame. Father, I just want to pray for those who are listening maybe today that are stuck in habitual sin that continues to weigh them down and cause them shame and guilt. Would you please help them to get free. If they need a relationship with Jesus Christ first, then Lord, show Jesus to them so they can be free from their sin and have the power to resist it. If they know Jesus, Lord, would you lead them to resources or give them the courage to ask for help so they can get free? Father, finally, would you help us as a church to start making holiness a part of our vocabulary? Because we know from the scriptures, and we've learned this as a church in recent months, that everybody you commended in the scriptures was commended for their close relationship with you, and nobody has a close relationship with you who still loves sin. And so, Lord, we want to be a people who are known for godliness and holiness and purity and integrity because we know those are things that you commend in your people. 
We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Moses' example, for his boldness, his courage, and his faith. Help us, Lord, to learn from him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.